on maynard.com.au. AU! With the Australian musical landscape sadly experiencing a decided lack of interesting musical pundits, one woman has stepped forward to toot the collective horn of the dark yet simultaneously blinding colourful decade known as the 90s. Jane Gazzo has done that and been there, from inner city beginnings at Melbourne's legendary 3 Triple R to Triple J, Triple M and BBC Radio, through to you seeing her on ABC's Recovery on a Saturday morning and Channel B and Music Max on Foxtel, you probably know of her. But have you ever shared a flat with her? Well, I haven't either, but Sharky from The Prodigy and Courtney Love have, and all of them are better people from the experience. She's written for Q Magazine, but more importantly, Dolly Magazine. Jane has published a book on John Farnham, but a new epic 90s book, as sound as ever, a celebration of the greatest decade in Australian music, 1990-1999. Please make welcome. It's my favourite Latrobe University graduate with a Bachelor of Arts degree in cinema that strangely has not yet won an Academy Award. Talk about robbed. May welcome Jane Gazzo. Thanks, Maynard. You are my favourite purple-suited presenter slash broadcaster. I think you'll find it's aubergine. How awesome to be in your company today. We bumped into each other at the Triple J 40th catch-up party. That was the last time I think oh, I saw Oh, that you. was so long ago, Maynard. There was no one documenting that. There was no radio person from ABC Radio. There was no TV person from ABC TV. And there you had staff from 40-odd years of Triple J all in the one room. It was, was a just, crime! Some of those people are no longer with us who were there. Oh, then. that's the saddest thing. And, and I'm glad that you're making your moment with the 90s here. Look, I was talking to a couple of people about this. Glenn A. Baker, he reckons the 70s were the greatest decade in Australian music. I mean, you're ignoring the work of Mother Goose. <laughs> Richard Wilkins told me that the greatest music decade in Australian music was the 80s. And you can't really deny the work of Joe Dolce. He did replace the Pope when he got shot that one time, which is even better than an ARIA award in my book. So you've got to make your case. What's so great about the 90s, Miss Pineapple and Vodka Juice Drinker? It is a bold statement. I grant you that. And yes, look, the 80s were fabulous. But for me, the 90s was the last decade of innocence. And by that, I mean, we didn't have camera phones. We didn't have mobile phones. Well, we kind of sort of did. Record companies had so much money to spend on bands and they pretty much did spend money on bands and the Australian music scene was in a really healthy state. As the year 2000 progressed, that innocence seemed to dissipate. Do you think the record companies spent their money wisely in the 90s? Could be argued for and against. There were some flippant signings. I mean, the sharp, let's be honest. Come on, look, <laughs> I will not hear a word against the black skivvied legends from Melbourne. Scratch my back, baby. Scratch my Don't you just train of thought? No one remembers train of thought, Maynard. I think it was an interesting time because you would go to a gig in the 90s and you would notice the A&R men, and they all were men, by the bar, basically seeing who had the fattest checkbook in their pocket. There was something in their pocket, that's for sure. (laughs) 
I'm just saying it was healthy. There was a lot of community. There was a lot of camaraderie. You did a lot of stuff on recovery, of course. So a lot of people were watching you bleary-eyed on a Saturday morning. And you would have been exposed to so many new bands of all varying talents. Varying talent. Sometimes you would get a band on and you would never see them or hear from them ever again. A band that I remember appearing on Recovery was a band called Cool for August. Now, they weren't Australian, they were American, but obviously the record company here were putting in thousands and thousands of dollars to launch them here and they never did anything. What were they called again? Cool for August. Because they had eyeballs on the recovery set. We used to recreate a lot of the CD single. We never heard from them again. And then there was things like Sin Dog Jelly Roll out of Adelaide, the most stupidest band name ever, Sin Dog Jelly Roll. I should have probably investigated. One of the things you have got in the book is the where are they now section. Even bands I'd never heard of because people are always going on about that. And you get a mention in there, Maynard, because it was you that introduced me to the artistic delights of Talot Talot. Talot Talot and Rob Clarkson. You bought me a box of dogs, I brought you down, I brought you down. You bought me a box of dogs, I brought you down. I love championing stuff on Triple J that wasn't even on their playlist at the time. And to lot to lot were a lot of fun. Yes, Always good up for a joke. My 90s list of bands goes a bit like this. <clears throat> Itchy and Scratchy, Mr. Floppy, The Mavises, Tism, The Oxo-Cubans, Talot Talot, Rob Clarkson, Aryan Seven, The Porkers, Caligula, Ratcat, Frente, Killjoys, The Sharp, Skivvies, Colette, Bjorn Again, Falling Joys, Floyd Vincent, Mary Keane, Frank Bennett. I've got the brains, you've got the looks, let's make lots of money. There you go. Where's things of stone and wood in that list? It was Happy Birthday, Helen. Oh! Happy Birthday, Helen. You've been probably torturing yourself with 90s music (laughs) in your head while you've been writing this book. Is there one that got stuck in your earlug that you really wish you'd, you know, no, not this again? Not so much and not this again. It was more of how did I forget this song? I actually fell in love with the Canberra band Sidewinder all over again and their track Titanic Days. forgot how brilliant it was. One thing you mentioned fairly early on in the book is that the 90s had a real feeling of optimism about mm. that ain't happening anymore, is it? Not on the level that it did in the 90s. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned the optimism, Maynard, because everywhere there was optimism. Certainly after we came out of the recession that we had to have, Paul Keating was our new prime minister. There was a sense, as I mentioned, that the record companies had money. And if you formed a band, you could pretty much live 
off the takings of being a musician. The music scene was so vibrant and so healthy. Anything was possible. And a lot of those bands that I interviewed for the book really talk about that optimism and that sense of we can do anything, we can get as big as we can, which is why bands like Tism became so big. like Spiderbait, QMI, there was this optimism, we can do anything, anything's possible. Well, that's certainly gone now. Uh, yeah, I think it's wavered somewhat. You've got the double whammy of venues disappearing and people not wanting to go out. It was the bloody pokies, wasn't it, that was introduced in the late no. 90s that saw really great venues just forfeit the stage for pokies because they realised that they could make more money from it. And I think that's where it all began. And also corporations taking over a number of venues at once, which is the case at the moment. Their business model is buy a whole bunch of pubs, run them with the pokies, don't do anything that's too hard, like having a or that kind of thing, and the land value goes up and then you sell it in 10 years and you've made 50% just on land value and you've paid for it with the pokies. I'd say every 20 years there's a revolution. I'm hoping that with the recent global pandemic, there'll be a new revolution and we'll find those protest songs and those bands will start coming out of little tiny warehouses again and the scene will, will reinvent itself. I really hope that's the case. That's the kind of thing I'd like to see. I just wonder, a lot of the, the experts and people with experience have left the industry if you are trying to run a venue mm, in mm, even a pub, you right. need someone who knows how to book bands, knows how to run a venue, and you can be taught that, but the experience of it is very mm. different. People that have been working in the music industry for probably most of their life all got out of it during the pandemic because they weren't making any money and, and they realised they couldn't make any money and so had to change careers, had to go into different fields, and now there is a real genuine skills shortage what are we going to do about it, Maynard? I think if one band can do anything about it, it's Tism. This is serious, <laughs> Mum. And they kick off your book in a pretty major way with a complaint letter from Bruce Ruxton from the RSL Association of Australia to Shock Records complaining about their record. It was so brilliantly done. For those who don't remember, Tism released a single called Australia the Lucky C-U-N-T and wrote that word on their CD single. But also to boot, they had a knockoff of a Kendone koala shooting up heroin on the front cover. <laughs> so you had itself. copyright infringement as well as offence, which is always a good double banger. <laughs> But you know what is so hilarious, and I talk about this obviously in the book, that Ken Doan didn't take offence to the fact that Tism copied his koala and put a koala with a syringe hanging out of his mouth. He took offence to the fact that they copied his son. So suddenly he was copywriting the son, the solar son, that was featured on the CD. Oh, I guess that's on most of his tea towels, so that would be the case. <laughs> and, yes, Bruce Ruxton, they actually sent a copy of the single to Bruce Ruxton in the hope that he would get his knickers in a knot, and lo and behold, he walked right into it, obviously received the CD single with the four-letter word on it and wrote a letter which should be banned, and his amused that to get more publicity for themselves. I want to write no lyrics, silly. Ow. Okay, you come up with something better, fuckface. And can we just pray silence, please, for the sad news of the first lady of music television in Australia, 
Bashir, Baisha Bukowski, or uh, Rendell, as she was known. Of course, the host of a wonderful SBS show. A rock around the world. Rock around the world, yeah. A fan of Buck's Fizz, who tells me, points out this very interesting point. I went to my school dance and a piece of the action by Buck's Fizz was just on. After it finished, everyone said, wow, what a great song, what was it? And on hearing Buck's Fizz, they all said, ah, oh, yuck, what an awful song. This is an oversimplification and, and goes to show that people just go by name and not a song, which is absolutely terrible, and I agree with you. Marsha the first? Was she the first? I think she was the first and Suzanne Dowling was the second. The media, is, I think they've conveniently forgotten Suzanne Dowling, who did Rock Arena. That was absolutely equally as brilliant. You put me in your book with Talot Talot, and as far as I know, you're the only person in the 90s media history who has put me in the book. Why? Because I mean, no you were so I mean, omnipresent in the 90s. I used to listen to your show. You were appointment listening, and that's when radio was really important. I mean, Triple J had literally just gone national when you started, and you were such a breath of fresh air on the radio, and you still are. I don't know how your mind works. You just presented really great radio, and it wasn't just the fact that you brought really cool bands on the radio. It wasn't just a lot, a lot either. I mean, you were the first one to play and break in this country Irish band Sultans of Pink. Dancing in the disco bumper, it's a bumper. Wait a minute. Where's me jumper? Where's me jumper? Where's me jumper? Where's me jumper? You used to do this amazing segment with wonderful woman, American woman. You got the wrong Sinatra. You got the wrong Sinatra. A Millie Sinatra, who's a lovely lady, and she would solve people's problems every week on the show. Well, this is the thing. Who's doing that now on Triple J? I don't hear any of that. It's almost like the people on public radio want to get onto Triple J and the people on Triple J wouldn't mind being on commercial radio. Do you think so? A lot been made about owning the music and they certainly do that to a large extent. But before, when every announcer was on, you'd know, like Tony Biggs, the great Tony Biggs, who I, I think he has on the blower or did have up to recently on Triple R. He would champion bands that you had never heard of and maybe you shouldn't have heard of, but that's a good thing. Yeah, Sultan's think, where's me jumper? Where's me jumper? Where's me jumper? Oh no. Where's me jumper? Dancing at the disco bumper to bumper. The film clip just had a jumper flying in the air. I mean, that's (laughs) the kind of thing you wanted. I remember one day the drummer from the band turned up while I was doing Sunday Afternoon Fever, and I couldn't believe it. The drummer from Sultans of Pink turned up live unexpectedly on the radio one day. Well, it was because of him being on a just a holiday, and I think he was staying at Bondi or Bronte or somewhere like that. He'd heard you playing Sultans of Pink, so he rang up and he said, hey, I'm Morty McCarthy, the drummer of Sultans of Pink. Now, I heard that, and I was on Triple R at the time. Oh. So I remember ringing you and saying, can you give me Morty McCarthy's details? I heard you. I, I want to interview him for Triple R. And I have to actually thank you, Maynard, because you may not know this, but Morty is now a very, very dear friend of mine. And when I moved to London in 1999, we used to catch up with each other all the time and and we're still friends to this day. He lives in Sweden. Classic example of the unknown consequences of doing something nice. (laughs) Yeah, he's a dear friend. Actually, he has been working for Radiohead. He's their number one merch guy. So he would go on tour with Radiohead. So whenever they're on tour, he'd always give me a free ticket. 
Radiohead. See, more unintended consequences. This oh, is no. Good. See, Maynard, you've had an effect on my life without you even knowing. We've got to get back to the fact that Mr. Floppy gets far too brief a mention. The album of the 90s, The Incredible Lightness of Being a Dickhead, is probably the best one ever. And Bruce Ruxton was on that album. Oh, my God. As was Peter Russell Clark, as was James <laughs> Rain. They just don't make them like that anymore. Don't let them fool you, Yana. Kiss me goodnight, Sergeant Major, and then you'll find there'll be a change of attitude. Kiss me goodnight, Sergeant Major, and then you'll find there'll be a change of attitude. You're trying to drag my emotions out. I could have done a whole book on Mr. Floppy and Tism alone. I also learned a lot about Ratcat as well, because having supported the guys more recently, I didn't know about the fact that they had to spend so much of their own money at the provocation of the record company to go overseas that was a really bad move for them. Yeah, in the middle of mass teen rat cat hysteria, they were told to go to London, to the UK, which makes absolutely no sense. And, of course, they never truly recovered once they got back because kids had moved on. They couldn't reclaim that fan base. And I think it's really interesting, and Andrew P. Street spoke at length to Amar Zenabella, who was one of the original members of Rat Cap, for the book, and Amar had never told his story before. Amar had never talked about his time in Rat Cat ever. He was really chuffed to be able to tell his story. I think he's very proud of what they achieved in that short time. In December, like a packed and more theatre there. People still love them. It's fair to say it's probably just Simon Day these days. I think Amber and Simon haven't spoken for years and years and years. Pretty much Simon Day these days whenever Rat plays and friends. And being the music industry, and you said that those two haven't spoken for a while, did you have to be careful who you spoke to when you did what you said? If you're talking to someone in a band and you knew that you shouldn't mention what's his name or the interview. Oh, put it this way. When I was doing the Where Are They Now?, I had to be very careful with certain members who didn't like other members or who were really still nursing a lot of heartbreak from the breakup of their bands. And I had to be really careful with how I wrote about that. Yeah, I just had to be really careful that someone wasn't going to email me and go, why did you mention that? But I also wanted to get across the story of the person that was brokenhearted. Let's talk about someone that was done wrong by the industry, and that's Tanya Lacey. A big day in radio right across Australia. The day the Triple J links up with Melbourne from Sydney and soon right around Australia. That's right. Radio that bites jumping out of your radio. And right here we have the Minister for Rock and Roll Radio. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Ralph Willis, the Minister for Transport and Communications. With me. Mm, again, another woman who has never told her story. I remember being on the phone to her and Mark because I was asked to, to host the show for a while. The first thing I did was ring them and they said, no, no, don't do it. And I didn't do it because I supported what they were doing. And as she said, her booting off from Countdown Revolution was something her career never has recovered from. It's true. She had to take writing jobs to support herself, but she was told never to darken the door of the ABC ever again. She was fired by fax. She wasn't even allowed to go and pick her things up. And the ABC said that the duo were fired for protesting about bands miming on the show, which was so far from the truth. As she puts it, she was protesting the fact, her and Mark were protesting the fact, that the ABC were taking contra deals from record companies. Reporters were being flown overseas to interview bands, free trip, 
free prizes, everything that the ABC charter states not to do, they were doing. Shortly afterwards, the ABC really cracked down on that kind of thing. As they should have. Tanya Lacey was in her early 20s at the time and was being yelled at by these suits in middle management. What do you do? Where do you go? She was so talented. Cruelly wasn't allowed to ever appear on air ever again. So she fled to, I think it was Sweden or where her uh, husband was probably, she's back now. She's in Queensland now. There's a great article in Rolling Stone, which I wrote, again, based on the fact that herself and Caroline from Dead Star talked about just what they dealt with in the 90s. And so I put it into an article in this month's Rolling Stone with the wiggles on the front cover to really tell their stories. Another show that fell through the crack was the one that was just on before recovery, and that was The Factory, of which Tanya was a powerhouse on that show. I loved the characters she used to take off. There was a Nana Muscuri character. That's where Tiziana Bubalini was born, of course, and she used to interview artists with the most hilarious of personas. And they just chucked the whole thing away. Yeah, very strange times. And it's interesting because Countdown Revolution was a precursor to what recovery would become, where anarchy was encouraged. But as soon as they ask Mark and uh, Tanya to be as anarchic as possible, they get shut down. Anyone who's been, who would have been to a Mark Little stand-up comedy gig would have told you what you'd be getting if you asked him <laughs> to go. At the Adelaide Festival, I think one of the uh, rooms was sponsored by the submarine company and uh, and he smashed up the sign one night. Look, I'm sorry, really, I mean, I don't want to be negative or anything. I just don't think we're ready. <laughs> G'day. Hi and welcome to the all-new, all-purpose, all-over-the-place Countdown Revolution. Yeah. You've nailed your 90s there with a list of stuff. In the 90s, Turagos, that was mainly the Toyota way of getting around with bands and those because the people carriers hasn't expanded as much as they are now. <laughs> when I went to London, and people started talking about people carriers, I did not have any idea what they were talking about because I'd always called it a Tarago. I'd yep. only ever known it as a Tarago. The lists people have made of things that were really big. It's interesting because phones just don't appear on the list. Cameras don't appear on the list. The vodka and pineapple juice, because there were some wacky connections there. And I think even the vodka and energy drink thing was going on then at the tail end of the 90s as well. See, it was illusion shakers for me, which oh. I think were mentioned. Illusion were they blue? Were they, in blue? The they were Maduri with lemonade and something else. And they were really big in the clubs in the 90s. But I remember it was part of Sunday Afternoon Fever. Who has the most expensive? Sub-Zero. Sub-Zero, that lemonade. I loved Sub-Zeros. Loved yes. them. And at clubs, they were really expensive. And I remember we found, oh, there was one going for as much as $7 at one mm. club. Also, at this time, I like mentioning that the import record thing was big because you couldn't just click and download stuff from anywhere oh. in the world. You had to go to a shop like Red Eye or many of the great record shops in Melbourne. If you wanted a CD, it could be as much as $45 in 1993 dollars weren't record shops such hubs of community you could go to a record shop and if the guy knew you behind the counter he would recommend something that he he'd know that you'd like you'd check out all the musos looking at the musos wanted boards you could find out about gigs that were happening you could get your import stuff you get your street press while you were there that's really lacking in today's world yes yeah, saturday morning at a place like central station you would have all the djs turning up and all the important ones like Wee ferris and people like that would have <laughs> their records put aside there is a fantastic map of old sydney record stores in the book some are still hanging on for dear life like red eye we all remember our record shops really fondly brunswick street was the go in melbourne 
Polyester was there. There was Sister Ray for a while. Of course, in the city, you had all Go-Go and Missing Link Records. Uh, Missing Link. I remember getting my copy of 99 by Barbara Feldon there. But when they find your body floating down the Rhine, that's a lesson don't go messing with 99. They also (laughs) released, I think, Kinky Boots they might have released by the Avengers, which I used to play on the radio as well. Everybody's going for the kinky boots, kinky boots, kinky boots. And whenever a Kylie record was released in the UK about a month or two ahead of us, I'd go and get the import copy and I'd play it first. trailblazer. I ended up setting fire to my own bum. That's what happens when you <laughs> set fire to your trail and you blaze it. You opened the doors for the likes of me, Maynard. You opened up the doors for us. You did the request show on Triple J of an evening. What After Michael you- Tun. Remember Michael Tun? Tunney had left by the time I took over his shift. I think he got burnt out because remember he was doing the afternoon show on ABC That's TV. Right. He was hosting Big Square Eye as well. He was 16 when yeah. he first arrived at Triple yeah, J. And yep. he was great. I took over from the request best and I changed it to super request. I started doing the request show on a Saturday night before Tony got it, and it was a really weird thing because there had been no request show on Triple J before they got me to do it for a couple of months before Tony took over. And the weird thing was you either got two sorts of songs. People would want something that was ultra commercial or they'd want something that was really obscure. It's like the audience didn't know what to do with a request show on Triple J at first. Look, Michael Tun had a really interesting way of broadcasting. He would have an FM radio, just a little transistor radio in the studio, and whenever he went to a song, he would listen to all the other major music stations in Sydney, find out what they were playing, and try and better the song that they had on. That's amazing. It means you're being reactionary. You're not leading, you're reacting. But it's a way to do it. Yeah. What are you doing today? I'm just looking to find out what uh, Today FM's playing. I'm just finding out what Triple M's playing. And what was the weirdest experience you had doing a request show there? Triple J request show, uh, when I was doing it, when Tony was doing it, when anyone does it, is not a normal request show. I'm going to let you in on a secret, Maynard. Some night on Super Request when I was hosting, there were no calls, There were no, which is hard to believe because we were nationwide. But some nights we just didn't have any talent or, you know, they'd ring up and they'd want a song that we couldn't play or didn't want to play or it was too daggy, too bad, whatever. So I can't believe I'm telling you this. Uh, Write this down, people. Write this down now. It's all true. I had this friend that was really good at putting on voices and accents (laughs) when we needed some talent on the air, especially Friday nights. I think Friday nights we struggled because everyone was getting ready to go out and had this friend, Glenn, that would put voices and accents on. Well, I loved that Radio Birdman song, um, Aloha, Stephen Dano. And I had read in the paper that day that the guy who actually played Steve, the actor on the actual Hawaii Five-O show, had passed away. Jack Lord, our Lord and Saviour, Jack Lord. So it was 1998 as he died. And so I went, oh, well, that's a great segue into Aloha, Stephen Dano, a homage to Jack Lord and Hawaii Five-O by Radio Birdman. Why not? Great. I rang Glee and I said, mate, can you come on and just mention you're a huge Hawaii Five-O fan? I'd always word him up. Uh, Jack Lord's passed away. Can I play Radio Birdman? He said, yep, not a problem, Jade. He, he, he was used to it, get, coming on and requesting songs. He got on air. We're live on air. And Glenn 
put on a Chinese accent. Oh, no. I don't know. He just thought he'd take, awfully racist as well, but he just thought he'd take the piss and put on a Chinese accent live on air. Jack Rod, pass away. <laughs> May not, I lost it because he'd never done that before. But I'm live on air going national and I've got to like, just explain what the f- I start laughing because I can't hold it together because I'm going, why is my mate put a Chinese accent? Making it worse oh by God, laughing. I, got, I had tears coming down my face. I got him on and I got him off. But Jesus, I was pissing myself. No word of a lie. The next day, someone from the Herald Sun was obviously listening and put in like in the entertainment section. Jane Gazzo was so disrespectful to a listener who was talking about the death of Jack Lord. Not cool, Jane. Glenn was putting on a friggin' Chinese accent. Sad bloody took me to task and wrote about it, like, that I was the most disrespectful person in the world ever. By the way, every commercial station does that for sure because the problem commercial stations have is not so much people ringing up but ringing up with the right songs that are on their playlist. Oh, my God, I know. Well, you know, you and I have both worked in commercial radio. When I worked at a commercial radio that will remain nameless but is still around today, they did this whole campaign about we're going to play the songs you want to hear. So make sure you get in and fill this thing online and tell us all the songs you want to hear. Of course, I got excited as a DJ. I went, oh, great, we're expanding our playlist from the 12 Cold Chisel songs and Guns N' Roses songs that we constantly play to maybe 20 songs. And I remember my boss coming into the studio while I was on air, which was a crime in itself, but he goes, you know, you got something lined up? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to play Run to the Hills because everyone loves Run to the Hills and there's so many requests for I don't play that, play garbage. But there's not one request from any male between the ages of 40 to 65 who's requested garbage. I'm only happy when it rains. He's going, no, but just ring up someone and get them to ask for it. And I'm like, what about Run to the Hills? Because that's what people want to hear. Because we're playing. I know this Chinese guy who really likes garbage. <laughs> Such a lie to the audience. The amount of lies in the book that I've spotted has been almost (laughs) zero. The quiz at the end is a good one as well. You're someone who's written a few trivia quizzes in your time, Jane Gatto. (laughs) Did you get them all right? Why don't you throw one out to the listener right now? Who was the host of Creatures of the Spotlight on Triple J on a Monday night? There's one for you. Peter Castaldi? Correct. And who was his co-host? I've forgotten there was a co-host. Yeah, it starts with L. Laurie Zion? You don't remember Laurie Zion? Laurie Zion. Chris's spotlight was Pete Castelli and then Laurie Zion. I'm sure they worked in tandem together. Uh, that's a good question for those 90s Triple J listeners. Look, and I'd like to finish with you making a request on this show. And don't do your Chinese voice again. <laughs> I'm, I'm on to you, Jane. Well, so now the, the, ra- the radio station would have to hand in its license. Oh, and, my God. Uh, and they'd just dig a large hole there, build a statue <laughs> of you, then pull the statue down and dig another hole, put the statue in it. It wasn't me. It was my mate, Glenn. A request. All right. I'm going to go rat cat. That ain't bad because eh, 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 I love you. That was a catch cry of the early 90s. And it really, for me, kickstarted the entire Australian music scene. Such a great, great song to go out with. Where can people get the book? Sound as ever. The greatest decade of Australian music, 1990 to 1999. 
in all good boutique bookshops, as well as the major chain bookshops, and you can get it online via Melbourne Books. I recommend people go along to your website. JaneGazzo.com. And have a good read of what you've done and all little incidents that have gone on. I do like the word that you shared a place with and you worked for Courtney Love briefly. Briefly. You. So was, was it the whole day? It was 12 days all up. Would the word mercurial be good to use? Batshit crazy is probably a better one. This book is worth reading, worth having. It'll settle arguments because that's one thing. You'll be at home, you'll be <laughs> watching stuff. One person will look at the wiki. One people will look at YouTube. They won't have the same answer. They'll be pushing and shoving and, and everyone will be drinking the pineapple and our vodka juice. And you can solve the answer by just having this book. Oh, hang on a minute. You supported Hugh Jackman as a DJ. I was his support act. What do you play when you're supporting Hugh Jackman? Playing stuff from Motown and 60s Soul. I was having a ball. Such a highlight in my life being the support act for Hugh Jackman. When I got off stage for the last time, I did a cartwheel down the runway. So I just cartwheeled all the way back. to. What song would you finish with? I think I finished with You Can't Hurry Love by The Supreme. Can't hurry love, no, you just have to wait. She said love don't come easy. It's a game of give and take. You thought of what song we should play for you? Right, Cat, that ain't bad. You don't want to change your answer. You don't Can want to I phone a friend. A friend? <laughs> Particularly a friend who puts on a fake Chinese accent. I'm not having that guy on the show again. <laughs> Jane Gazzo, thank you very much. She's requested it twice, so we have to play it now on the Maynard Request Fest here. Sound as ever, it's great, and so is Jane. You got the wrong Sinatra.
Lord, pass away. <laughs> On Maynard.com.au. AU. Bryson and Hume. Everything digital.